Hello, fellow grievers. You have found the leftover pieces, Suicide Lost Conversations, and I am Melissa, your podcast host. Join me for real conversations and candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of a loved one to suicide. I talk with other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and sometimes I offer my own thoughts. Every week we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and hopefully offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me and together let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Today, for my first episode of my first season of this podcast, I speak with a very special lady. Her name is Bonnie Swade, and she's the founder of SAS MoCan, which is a nonprofit in the Kansas City area. She founded it with her husband, Mickey, following the death of their oldest child, her son, Brett, who was 31. Brett ended his life by suicide on December 20th. 2003. SAS MOCAN helps survivors find support and it unites them with other survivors, helping ease the pain of the loneliness we all feel following a suicide loss. It also offers community support, such as their annual walk, along with outreach opportunities and education, including some that they do in the area prisons. Today, you're going to hear Bonnie and I talk about things like her sharing Brett's struggles leading up to his suicide. She talks candidly about the aftermath of his suicide and the effects on the family. We speak about support groups and why we both feel they are such valuable tools to have in a griever's toolkit. And ultimately, we end as two moms discussing a mother's love. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. Welcome, Bonnie. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm so glad you're on. I want to start by telling my listeners how special this interview is to me. Bonnie is a former high school teacher of mine. She was actually my favorite high school teacher. She was my English teacher. And uh, I always thought she was the best. She was just a wonderful, vibrant woman. Uh, she loved chocolate, and so did I. <laughs> that was one of our, our commonalities, among many other things. I'm going to invite Bonnie to start by telling me your last story, Bonnie. Okay. Well, it started uh, in 2003. Our son, Brett, uh, took his life, and uh, for for whatever reason, uh, our lives changed big time after that. Um, Brett had, was the oldest of four children. Uh, we've had a blended family. And uh, as a little boy, he always, um, he always was looking for ways to change the, the situation, how he could, how he could uh, make something happen when it wasn't really supposed to happen. So he grew up, um, and uh, his freshman year of high school, um, he was a little bit out of control, and we found that our home life was just always up and down. And so we thought, well, maybe we didn't give him enough structure. So we um, sent him to Missouri Military Academy in Mexico, Missouri, uh, second semester of his freshman year, 
And he became the battalion commander there. That's the highest honor that a, a boy can have. In uh, 30 days before graduation, his senior year, he got caught um, buying Robitussin uh, in the downtown Mexico, Missouri. And of course, they wanted him out. The school was nice enough to let him graduate when all the other boys had left. And so after graduation, he decided that he was going to join the military. And uh, because he couldn't wait, he was a, a real kind of guy that had to do everything fast. Um, he decided to join the Army. He really wanted to do the Marines, but that was a waiting period, and he didn't want to wait. So he joined um, the Army and was uh, stationed in Germany. He repelled out of, uh, out of helicopters um, he was just that kind of a kid that liked to always take a lot of chances. And um, that kept us on our toes uh, for many, many years. And um, during the time that he was in the Army, he met a girl uh, from St. Louis, and they got married. And she went to Germany with him. And he stayed in the military for almost six years. Um and he did really well in the military. Um, I I don't know. He did. Uh, uh, he took cars apart and put them back together. He did a lot of different things in the army. And the uh, toward the the end of his six years, um, I'm not sure what really happened, but he um, had a a discharge, a, a general discharge, and. Um, I found out later the reason for that was that he had um, attempted suicide a number of times while he was in the Army. I didn't find that out until after he died and we got the papers from the Army. And that's when I found out that he had attempted many times. So um, when he came back after the Army, he um, was back and forth from Kansas City to St. Louis. He went to Seattle and did fishing on a, a boat. He was gone for several months at a time. And I was really kind of happy for him because when he was on the boat, he couldn't use alcohol and he couldn't get drugs. So for us, it was like almost like a relief that he was on the boat. Well, he decided that that wasn't what he wanted to do. So in the meantime, um, he and his wife got a divorce. They didn't have any children. And she went back to St. Louis and he came back to Kansas City. And um, he um, was in Oxford House. He was in Hardy House, different houses where you could drug houses and alcohol houses. And um I just, uh, I just didn't know what was going to happen to Brett. Um, he had a job, and um, he wanted to live here at home, but we just couldn't have that. Um, we just couldn't have him come back home. Um, he was just too up and down, and and um, he would steal things, and we just didn't want to put ourselves through that. So uh, he got a hotel room in uh, central Kansas City, and we paid for his room. And so he, um, he, lived, he lived like that for a while. 
And then um, one one December, we were going to go to uh, Chicago and visit our daughter and her children. And um, we were going to be back in time for Hanukkah. And Brett said, oh, I'll see you and all this and that. And while we were in Chicago, we got um, we got a call from our son who was watching the dogs here at home. And um, he uh, told us that Brett had taken his life in our gazebo in our backyard. Well, it was the quietest ride home from Chicago I think we've ever had. I was lost in my thoughts and Mickey was somewhere with his and we came back to Kansas City, and um, we we just didn't really know what to do. Um, our rabbi had had found out, and he had called us, and he asked us, "Did we want to let people know that it was a suicide, or did we want to say it was, you know, by some other means of, of death?" And we said, "No, we we really felt like." We wanted to let people know that it was a suicide. Now, keep in mind that uh, 16 years ago, suicide was not talked about like it is today. So we were way ahead of the curve on on that. So um, we um, we had his funeral. He was cremated, and um, our children, the other children, came in for his uh, his funeral. And after that, it was uh, I was uh, off of um, school for Christmas break, and I went back right after um, Christmas. I don't know how I did it, to tell you the truth. I thought, well, I'll keep busy. That'll be the best thing. So I went back uh, to school, and I thought I was a guidance counselor by that time. And I thought, well, who is going to want to send their kids to me? to give any kind of, uh, any kind of, uh, I guess, um, I guess advice, but I figured if they knew that my son had taken his life by suicide, that's not too much of a credibility thing. But nevertheless, I went back and, um, I, I still don't know how I did that. Um, but I did. And my husband and I, um, were having problems because he was grieving one way and I was grieving the other. And in my opinion, um, he must not love Brett because he wasn't grieving like me. So um, I went to a, um, a psychologist and um, she helped me kind of get things in perspective. She informed me that men are sometimes not as... Um, as open about uh, things like this as women are. And where I was wanting to talk about his life, Mickey got busy with doing things in the basement. He uh, made more things in his workshop than he ever had. But our marriage was kind of tipsy because I didn't know how I was going to stay married to somebody who wasn't grieving like me. So we... um, we work things out, and I'm happy to say we've been married almost 44 years come October, so we, we definitely um, made it through. But it is very difficult for a couple to still be together after the death of a child. 
um, whether it's a suicide or a, a murder or some other kind of death, but it's very difficult. But we we did get together and we did um, we did go to Solace House, which is a place in Kansas City. And uh, when we went there, there was five of us there that had lost children by suicide. So they formed us into a group. So we stayed with Solace House for around oh nine months or so. And um, it was good. It was really good. We had conversation. We talked about our children and we learned some techniques. And after Solace House, um, I thought, well, maybe maybe I could start a group. So we we got started with a group. We had to find a place and um, we found a place at Shawnee Mission Hospital, which is now Advent Health. And we've had our support group there ever since then. Um, we're It'll be 17 years come December the 20th. So we um, have a support group. We run uh, twice a month, the second and fourth Tuesday of the month. And with COVID, we weren't able to meet for a long time. So we did it on Zoom. It's very difficult to have a support group on Zoom. Uh, you know, people are not easily uh, able to, I guess, get their emotions out with Zoom, but um, we we did it. And a few weeks ago, I got a call from the hospital that we could come back, but we had to have some things uh, in check. We had to wear masks. We had to have our temperatures taken. Um, we couldn't give out any books. We always had books for our library that people could check out. We couldn't do any of that, uh, but we could meet, but we could have no more than 10 people. So we started meeting and where we had maybe 20, 25 people at each meeting, it went way down to five or six. And that's kind of where it's been the last several weeks is that our meetings um, are not as well attended as they were, but that's because of COVID. Um, and we have a friend that's doing the Zoom meetings. So while we are having our meetings in person. He is on Zoom. And so we are at least able to cover, hopefully, people that want to be helped. Right. Um, so in talking about support groups, especially back 17 years ago, when when you and, and Mickey started SAS MOCAN, um, I know that, you know, probably when people think of support groups, one of the most common things that comes to mind is Alcoholics Anonymous because they've been around a long time. Um, 17 years ago, not only was suicide not as prevalently discussed, but it definitely probably wasn't something that as many people were comfortable going into a situation with other people and discussing. So I want you to maybe speak to, to this duality of not only back then and how you feel like um, that helped you then, um, if you wish you had maybe, if you had sought out something like that from the beginning, if maybe that would have helped a little bit sooner, because that's kind of one of the things I think is that I always tell people one of my goals now is to try to help share what, you know, and I'm, I'm just over four years into this journey. So, um, I want to try to share some of the things that maybe I wish I had done differently 
um, some of the things that, that, you know, I, I probably couldn't have done differently. Um, because again, like you, there's so many things I look back at now, even only four years out and think, how did I get through that? Or how did I even function in doing that? But one of the things I wish I had done, and one of the things I want to provide is a way for people to find support early on, because I feel like I didn't know where to look. And that's even in a world where support groups exist. So can you speak a little bit to what SAS MOCAN looked like in the beginning and maybe what 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 the difference is now? And maybe COVID is a bad time to talk about that. You could kind of go back to pre-March or February if you want to a little bit and hope that we can be there again, right? <laughs> well, when we started this support group, the first thing we had to do was get a place. And so um, we knew of uh, somebody that knew somebody at Shawnee Mission then, and um, he said that we were welcome. He They gave us a room there. And uh, we started with maybe three people that would come to the meetings. And um, it uh, it was good. I mean, we were able to share our feelings and and talk about, you know, the guilt we had, uh, the woulda, coulda, shoulda, and some of those things. And as uh, as we have progressed, um, it seems like people now uh, come to the support group a lot sooner than they did 17 years ago. Like um, we had a, a lady come to the group and her daughter had taken her life by suicide and it had been 27 years before she was able to come to a support group. And she didn't stay with us very long because she thought we were going to fix everything for her. And, you know, you can't fix. Uh, you can be there to support, but you can't fix. So um, our group then just started adding more and more people as uh, as time went on. And um, it got to be where it got to be quite large, actually. Uh, it got to be like 20, 25 people. And that's really almost too large for a support group. But we made it work. And um, some of the people that have come, I guess, within the last year, some of them come within months or weeks after their uh their loved one has taken his or her life. And so because I think suicide is a lot more talked about than it ever has been, they're more apt to want to get some help. And so I would say that that is probably the best thing that has happened with the support group is that we're known now in the Kansas City area. There's been many other support groups that have started since ours. Um, but um, it's good to see people that are coming soon after. They just uh, don't want to deal with it all by themselves. And so we're there. We give support. We have books that they can check out. Um, so I would say that probably the most important thing is that 17 years ago, suicide was not talked about. Um, it was... Um, it was kind of a, a, a subject that people didn't want to even begin to talk about. And so since then, um, it seems like it's more readily out there 
and people are willing to talk about it. There's still a stigma, you know, with suicide, and there probably always will be, but at least it's gotten much, much better than it ever has been. Um, we realized soon after we started our support group that, you know, support group takes some money to, to get it going, books and, and treats and all that kind of stuff. So we decided that maybe we could look at beginning a nonprofit. So we uh, looked into that, and that's how SAS MOCAN, Suicide Awareness Survivor Support, Missouri and Kansas, really got started. We, um, we started it because we wanted to help our support group, but we also wanted to give assistance to other support groups in the Kansas City area. So um, we started it, and we have a walk every year. This year, it was a virtual walk, um, and it turned out really great. Um, I can send you the link if you're interested, but it really turned out wonderful. And um, our our mission now is to help fund support groups just starting and those that are already out there and are needing help. So that's what we do now. We have our walk every year. And uh, in November, we have a hope for the holidays, helping people deal with how to get along on the holidays with one less person at the table, so to speak. And um, then we have a healing day in April, uh, which is kind of um, a day where we bring in oh, um, steel drums, uh, we bring in uh, music. Uh, we have speakers, and it's a way to learn a little bit more about yourself. We've done art therapy and just some some things that help people along the way. Since this year is so crazy, I doubt that we will have that, but we are planning on having our, um, our Hope for the Holidays event in November. So uh, that's kind of what, we, what we've been doing. Well, I, I, I think that the work you do is so important. And I think that you, you kind of answered one of the questions I was going to ask already, which was why a support group is so important. Like, um, you know, me saying that I think people in the beginning should seek out support and people that are listening that maybe are new in their grief or people that are far along in their grief and haven't had a place to go. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on was to be able to discuss the importance of and the role a support group can play in somebody's life. And people that have never been to a support group of any kind might not know what to expect and what that looks like as far as what's going to be, I think, one of the biggest nervous points people have. And, and I had never had experience with a support group. Well, I shouldn't say that with the exception of I had um, attended um, adult children of alcoholics and Al-Anon meetings as a young adult because I had grown up in a home where alcoholism was an issue. And so I knew what to expect in that arena, but where, where I was so vulnerable with the loss of my son and something that's hard for us to talk about, I think so many people are afraid um, to even walk into a support group, not knowing whether they're going to be put on the spot, whether they're going to be asked to share things that they don't want to share. And um, I love that you highlighted some of the things that people do once they feel comfortable. But can you speak to at least your experience in not only how 
the the group that you and Mickey attended before in your experience with uh, support groups, but what your support group looks like should somebody choose to seek out a support group, whether they're in the Kansas City area and it's SAS Mocan or whether it's another one of kind of what support groups do and how it really feels like a safe space for them? Well, when we attended the one at Solace House, um, it was a closed group, which means that you start at a certain time and they don't let people in during the time that you're there. And so each quarter, they uh, open it up to new people again. Um, But we wanted a group that people could come to that they didn't have to wait. Because at Solace House, if you lost somebody to suicide, they would say, well, we're only in the second week of this group. So you'll have to wait till, you know, six weeks or seven weeks. And we didn't think that was right. So when we started our group, we had an open group and um, it's open to anybody that has lost a loved one by suicide. And how it works is, Um, And I've had many people tell me that the hardest thing to do is to leave your car and come into the building because you don't know what's going to happen. But what we do is um, we introduce ourselves and people can talk if they want to, if they feel comfortable in talking, Um, they can talk, they can tell their story. New people, if they want to pass, they are certainly welcome to pass. They can pass for weeks. It just doesn't really matter. But eventually we have found that they will come around and want to tell their story. And um, most of the time as a facilitator, we keep the group going. Um, We try not to get We try not to always give our opinion because they're not there for our opinion. They're there to vent and they're there to seek help from other people. So we uh, keep the conversation going. I always have open-ended questions or something that in case there's a lull in the conversation, I can always bring something up. And um, we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about guilt. We talk about how sometimes we've lost friends through a a suicide. Um, We've lost uh, family members that uh, feel like, um, you know, we did something wrong and that's why our son took his life. So they they can't be a friend of ours anymore, don't want to see us anymore. Um, We also talk about ways that you can um, support the loss of your loved one. And um, we'll have books that they can check out. We have a pretty good library. And so we we have an open group where people can come anytime. It doesn't matter what stage we're in because we don't have a stage. We're just always, you know, talking about suicide and trying to make people comfortable. And so we don't have a plan that this is the third week and we're going to cover guilt that week. And the fourth week, we're going to cover, you know, how um, family members react to us. So we just have an open agenda and uh, people can come and that works out well for us. Um, And most of the support groups in the Kansas City area and Lawrence have this kind of an open concept, which I, I like. I think it's uh, it's much better to help people where they are instead of making them wait. 
I agree. And, and don't you think that it's important to note that support groups, just like possibly a therapist as part of, you know, our arsenal of tools of how we get through this is something that it's, I want to encourage people to, if you find a support group to go several times, um, it's hard. I remember the first time I walked into a support group, even thinking that I was a person who was open to that type of thing, wanted that kind of support, wanted some, wanted to look in the eyes of somebody else who understood, which to me is one of the biggest reasons people thrive in support group environments, because there's, there's just nothing like looking in the eyes of someone else that understands, even if you don't exchange any words. And for me, being able to find a support group that fits for you is important. But to, 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 I always tell people to try to commit to going to a support group three or four times if they can before they know if it fits because the dynamic of a support group by nature, I think you'll agree, is that not everybody attends every meeting and the dynamic of every meeting isn't going to be exactly the same. So it takes a little bit to kind of feel whether that's the environment that you want to be in. And I don't think as a facilitator, you would say that you would ever feel offended if somebody did feel after a while that they wanted to go try to find another support group, that there's room for for other types and other other you know other support groups might be a better fit. I just want to encourage listeners that if you go to one, one try to go multiple times and I just want to know if you agree with that and two to, to if it doesn't feel right after a few months, maybe look for another one but don't give up on the idea because I find it invaluable. I you know, I've attended some Zoom support groups and you and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording. The Zoom platform is difficult with support groups um, because it's, it's harder than being in person. You can't read each other's body language the same. If somebody does start to talk over the other person, it's very difficult in a zoom format, which where if you're in person, it's just much easier to kind of have that flow of conversation. The lulls that exist in the zoom rooms are harder, but nonetheless, I've continued to go because what's your in Florida where I am, um, it COVID's even more prevalent. So they haven't started any, at least in the groups I've looked at any in person, they're talking about it in October and November, but so it's still zoom. So, um, I just think going back, I know I circled around a little bit, but the importance of maybe going, you know, multiple times, giving it a chance. And then if that one doesn't feel right, finding another one, would you agree with those things after facilitating all these years? I would. We ask uh, people that come if they'll give us three times, if they'll come three times. And then if they decide that it isn't for them, then, you know, we'll help them find another group or suggest some individual counseling. It's uh, kind of interesting that one of the fellas that has um, started a support group, he started with us and he lost his brother to suicide and he came Oh, four or five times. And then we didn't see him for a year. He just wasn't ready to share. And he came back and um, he, you know, became part of the group. And he is the one who runs the Zoom support groups now. So, you know, you can't make it work for yourself until it's right. Yeah, I think I think that's good. And, you know, it's it's I went I attended your support group a a couple of times in Kansas City. Um, Once I found out that you had lost your son and when I saw your name, I immediately knew who you were when I was looking for support groups and then decided you were 
I was living way north and a lot of the listeners won't know what this means, but there was a, quite a distance to get to the support group from where I was living in the Kansas City metro to where your group was. But nonetheless, my husband and I went down several times. And had we lived closer to you, um, I felt very um, good at your support group. I met several people that I stayed in contact with and I'm still in contact with and I even sat on the board with a couple of them um, of a different group in the Northland for a while. Um, so the contacts I made, even though I only was going a few times, was invaluable and um, still are with me even now. And had I lived closer, I would have continued to attend your support group because I never did find one wallet before we left Kansas City that felt as good to me as yours did. Um, so that's just, you know, to me, the importance of finding one that um, really fits and fits with your schedule. And that, you know, again, I couldn't relocate to a different part of the metro, but I wished I could have at the time. So um Talk to me briefly. I want to go back to a point that you addressed earlier, and I know that you don't know that we have this piece in common too, but you talked about how right away you addressed that Brett died by suicide. Um, while suicide is more commonly discussed and not quite as quite as stigmatized as it was, we know that it's still not where it should be. There still is a stigma, like you said, on some level there always will be. I still think we have a ways to go to break it down more um, it, for today's world than it currently is. Um, from the very beginning, we chose to talk about Alex as taking his own life right away, too. And much like you, it didn't even occur to me to do anything different. Like, I didn't hesitate. I didn't ask anybody. When we put his um, obituary together and I, I turned, gave it to the, the funeral director to put in there on their website and everything, it had, I put right away, Alex ended his life on and at, you know, and somebody said something to me later that week of, did you mean to put that in there? And I, well, of, that's probably not a dumb question to ask a grieving mom. Did you mean, cause I don't know what I was doing. Right. Um, but during that week, how I, how I even managed to write anything, I, I don't know, but we owned that from the very beginning. And now that I am working towards my entire life's purpose, being in the field of mental health awareness and suicide prevention and awareness, I want to talk about how, important it feels to me and if it you know I'd like you to speak to it as well on how important it is to be able to acknowledge that your loved one died by suicide but from a dual standpoint why was it important to you to acknowledge that as a family or did you even consider whether it was important and why do you feel like it's important for people to be able for their own mental health to address that head on well, for, for us, um, I wanted to address it because I didn't want to lie to people about how Brett died. Um, it's not his death that we are, are, we are grieving his death, but we're grieving the life that he had before his death. And so he did have a life and he, he had a very good life and he loved people and they loved him. And so that one minute or so that it took him to make that decision shouldn't really impact a thought about our son. Um, and we always tell people that, you know, you cannot live in the shadow of the suicide. Uh, it happened and it, that said, it happened. So, um, we, we felt very comfortable um, discussing it. Um, 
And um, even today, um, I don't just, you know, meet somebody and say, hey, you know, I lost my son to suicide. But if it comes up or they ask how many children I have, I will uh, tell them, you know, that we did lose a son to suicide. But I I don't just go up to somebody, anybody, and just say, hey, guess what? You know, I, I just wouldn't do that. Um, and the other question you asked was what? What was the other question? Um, I'm trying to think now. Just um... Oh, how many times people come to the group or? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. And I can, I can honestly, we can, we can just, I don't remember the other question that I asked Bonnie. I can edit this part out, but um, so in talking about it being important to acknowledge, I guess that's kind of where I was going was just talking about in my experience, which is only four years, but yet it's the longest four years of my life, as you know. Um, so in many ways, it feels like yesterday, and it feels like forever, um, mm-hmm. because it is so, so heavy to carry suicide. But, you know, all I was trying to get at with talking about addressing it right away was I know that recently, I heard somebody say that there were two years into their suicide loss, and I believe it was a spouse. And I just felt so sad when they said that two years in, they were just now beginning to tell people that their loved one had died by suicide, that they had been telling everyone that there had been a heart condition. Mm -hmm. And it made my heart hurt for them because it's not about, like you said, they're not really, I want to encourage people to be able to realize that it's about, um, that we want to focus on how our loved one lived and the life that they had and that it's a moment, it's a moment in in time that they make the decision to take their life and that there isn't, you know, that hiding behind that shame builds layers within ourself of complicate over complicates an already complicated grief. And I think suicide grief is complicated enough. Um, And so the sooner they can, and maybe find that's kind of goes back to having you on and and wanting to talk about support groups and the importance of support groups is because I think the sooner that people can get to an area where they feel some safety, because maybe this person didn't feel any safety in their life. And, and I wasn't in any means have no judgment for how anybody handles this loss, because we all have to do the best we can with what we've been given. Um, but it's why I would encourage people to seek out support groups and other means to find a way to allow them to acknowledge the way that their loved one died so that they can go on to learn to live a happy life and have it become something that is a part of their life, but isn't something they're constantly hiding from or feeling shame from because that adds extra burden to something that's already you know, heavy enough. Um, and I, I just, it, I think that it's, it's a topic that's unfortunately more common than we wish it was. I, that people do still run from suicide being talked about more than, more than I think they should. <laughs> so, and, and maybe here's the difference, you know, you're coming at it from, um, 17 years in Sasmo can, how many years before that had did Brett pass? How long has he been gone? Well, this um, 
this December, it will be 17 years. Okay, 17 years. And so for me, it's been four. And so to look at it on kind of a little bit different end, you know, here, I feel like we haven't come far enough. And it is a little encouraging to hear you say we've come a long way from where, as a society from where it was then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would assume that you agree, we still have a ways to go. <laughs> Definitely, most definitely. With education and with, you know, just destigmatizing in general, because I think the stigma with suicide is the same stigma that causes a lot of suicides to occur because they're afraid to step forward and say, I'm suicidal um, because of the stigma. I mean, I think it becomes a circular, a circular issue. Um, I do want to, and we'll put, um, the links to not only your walk, but your organization in the show notes. I I did watch, you sent me the link to the virtual walk this year and I did watch it. It was very moving. I thought you guys did a great job for, you know, a virtual walk, right? And there's a lot of people doing that kind of thing right now. And who knows whether we'll have to do that for another year or not, right? So um, I will definitely put the link so that I think anybody that's in any metro area or anywhere in the world that would listen to this episode could benefit from watching that. So I'll definitely put that in the link and then in the show notes. And then I'll also put links to, you know, SAS Mocan. So anybody that's in the Kansas City area would know how to find you and and your website and all of those good things. Um, I want to ask you one kind of final thing before we um, finish our conversation for the day. But if I could ask you one more thing, it would be to share maybe one of your favorite memories of Brett and it's a two part question. And one way that your family still keeps Brett alive. Well, one of my favorite memories is um, when Brett was in Sunday school, we have Sadaka, which means that you take money uh, when you go on Sundays and uh, you, you give it to people that you, you collect money. And then you give them, uh, you give the synagogue the money and they do with it what they want. Well, I told you, Brett was a pretty precocious kid. And um, we were uh, living in a cul-de-sac at the time. And I had several people come up to me and they said, oh, we are so pleased what Brett is doing. And I said, really, what, what is he doing? And they said, well, he's collecting money for the poor. And I said, Oh, okay. So um, I asked him about it. And he was going with his Sadaka box, but he was planning to keep the money himself. And so he wasn't going to share it. So that's just one of the I, I find that very humorous, because that's just Brett, you know, that's just kind of the kind of kid he was. <laughs> That's a, that's, that's definitely a cute story. Is there anything that your family still does that's ongoing, um, meaning yearly now, or that, that is kind of a tradition that you guys do that maybe integrates Brett into the family still, or, you know, is there something you started then you well, still I'm do glad, or what? How do- I'm glad you mentioned that because after 17 years, I have to be real honest and say that his brother and his sister's don't talk a lot about him anymore. And that hurts. 
It hurts a lot. Um, but I understand they're all married and they have families of their own. And and I get it. I totally get it. But whenever we have Thanksgiving, I always make one of Brett's favorite salads, which is a Watergate salad. Nobody ever eats it, but I make it anyway because that is what he always liked. And we usually have a drink and we say a toast to him. And that's just real important because they don't talk about him a whole lot. And that's kind of disturbing. Um, his one sister that he was very close to, she will talk about it a little bit. But the other daughter and the other, the son that found him uh, in the gazebo just really don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, I, I know that those things are still unfolding in my own family. And, um, you know, I guess I guess I'll end with saying there's no love like a mother's love. Right. 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 I mean, because. I just, I just think we hold a special, a special place for our children. And, and, you know, I, I commend all the work that you're doing and I'm I'm so thankful that we got to talk and I'm so appreciative that you were willing to share your story, Bonnie. It was, uh, um, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of this that people will benefit from hearing. Well, Melissa, I never thought when you were my student that we would ever end up like this. And so I want to say that many people that are out there probably don't think that they will either. But it does happen. It does. It does. I agree. You just you just don't know. And it's 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 a sad irony to me to realize that the teacher that I love so dearly and felt like I had so much in common with love of language, all sorts of things, chocolate and just kind of felt connected with this isn't how I ever wanted to be connected with you later in life. But I also feel honored to share this space with somebody like you. Well, and I I feel the same way and I only wish you the very best. Grievers, it is my hope that from today, you will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. If you connect with what you have heard, please subscribe to get notified of my new episodes every week, and please feel free to share it with others in the suicide loss community. If you are so led, I would also be honored if you would leave a review so that others might find us more easily. You can find me and all ways to connect with me at my Instagram, The Leftover Pieces. I want you to know that I know how very, very hard life is now. It's true that we will never be the same, but we are going to be okay. We will figure this out somehow, together, and we will keep our loved ones with us because there is no getting over or past grief, only learning to live more gracefully alongside it. Only through talk can we keep their memories alive learn to live again, and bring some awareness so that less will suffer. Join me again next week, and we will keep the talk going. We will sign off today, as always, with the wise words of my Alex's favorite, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.